We've been in a series uh, in Romans, and uh, we're at Romans 15 today, so I'll give you a second to get there. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. Um, so Romans is in the New Testament, uh, kind of near, near the end of the Bible. Um, I was moved while we were singing, just looking up here, so thankful for J.D. and for Annie and the team, and not just their leadership, but um, there's a lot of stuff that happens on Sunday that it's easy to take for granted. Um, all these speakers, all these stands, all these wires everywhere. Uh, there's a team that starts 7.30 or 8. KTC, they start setting up early and the welcome team. So um, let's, just, uh, let's just express our thanks for them, for all of them every Sunday. Very thankful for their faithfulness. So, um, so I'm going to, uh, in honor of Ron Jour, if you're there, say I'm there. All right, I'm going to give you some more time. It's Romans 15, verses 1 to 4. Uh, maybe I should have said that a little more clearly. Uh, if you're there, say I'm there. Okay, I, that's like two-thirds, so we'll go with it. Um, all right, I'm going to read and then we'll pray. This is what Paul says. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him or her up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through encouragement through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I'm going to read a little bit of five. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you that we have something tangible to grip, to hold on to. I confess, Lord, that we in our natural state we we speak sin it's what we understand it's what we desire it's what we want but i thank you for the transforming work of the holy spirit and for sanctification for teaching us to speak god to speak truth to speak the gospel i pray this morning that you would get glory lord i pray that any anxiety or pride i feel will will not be in the way i pray lord that you would just receive glory i pray that you would use me as a mouthpiece so be with our time right now and let us learn from your word. In your name, amen. So the, uh, the title for this sermon is Endurance and Encouragement, which you see in verses 4 and 5, um, but we're going to kind of build toward that. I'm going to go through each verse and we'll, we'll see some different points in that verse kind of building up. But the way Paul starts it is he says, we who are strong. And I started thinking... Um, I used to watch these uh, strongman competitions, World's Strongest Man competitions, which is like kind of quasi-sport, kind of quasi, I don't know, something you would pay a couple tickets in the fair to see these guys that are so enormous. So if you don't know what it is, I'll give you a little bit of background. But they have this competition once a year, and um, they do all these like superhuman feats. And the guy who won last year is Tom Staltman. I think I have a picture of him with his wife. Maybe, hopefully. Um, that's him. He is, sorry, I couldn't find one with his wife without a shirt on. But, um, uh, it, well, there was one, but anyway. He is six foot eight and weighs 400 pounds. Uh, and he is the one who won last year. And the, 
I think the champion before him was six foot nine and over 400 pounds. So these guys are enormous. Um, I mean, to give you some perspective, I'm 170 pounds. So he's like more than twice as big as I am. I mean, he's only probably like 10% stronger, but size-wise, <laughs> hey, why is everybody laughing? Uh, you know, so like pound for pound, I'm probably stronger than him, but he's stronger overall. Okay, I'll give him that. So, um, so they do these crazy feats, and, and you try to accumulate points. So they do these competitions, and each competition you get points, and whoever has the most points at the end, that's the winner. So I'll give you the example of some of these things they do. They do one called Atlas Stones. So see those four stones, and then a guy has a fifth stone. It's a, it's a perfectly, like, spherical ball of rock, and you have to pick it up off the ground, and they start, there's nothing to grab onto. They start at 220 pounds, and the fifth one is 350 pounds, and you have to lift it onto a platform that's, like, above their waist, right? So I don't know if you've ever tried to pick up anything, uh, if you've ever lifted weights and tried to pick up something off the ground, but even if you have a bar to grab on to, 220 pounds is a lot. I mean, I don't even like to pick up a milk carton from the ground anymore at this point in my life. And so this guy, he's got four of them up there, and he has a 350-pound one that he's trying to get up onto the fifth one. And whoever does that the fastest gets the most points. Uh, another thing they do is called the car walk. And it's a hollowed-out car. I mean, you can see it still has the tires and the brakes and all that stuff, but it doesn't have the seats. And so they, they stand up through the, through the sunroof or the moonroof, depending on what part of the country you're from, and um, it has these straps on it. So you have to pick it up, and you have to use your upper body to hold it steady, and then you use your lower body to, to walk forward. And they have to walk 82 feet carrying that car. Now, it's not a Suburban, I get it, but still, it's a car that they're picking up by themselves and walking 82 feet with it. The next one is a log press. And so this guy, you can see, um, he's not shopping in the petite section. He, you have to pick the log up off the ground, get it here, and then press it overhead. All right? And the record for that is 468 pounds pressing overhead. Again, that's almost my weight, like times three, pushing overhead. And then this last one that's pretty crazy is they pull vehicles. Uh, that is a bomber plane that weighs 188 tons. So they pull, um, uh, what are the things they pull? They pull trains, buses, and airplanes. They have to pull them 100 feet. So they have a, a rope hooked to the back for their legs, and then they're pulling on a rope with their arms. Now, they don't always pull it on concrete surfaces. Sometimes they pull it in the snow. Sometimes they pull it on ice. Sometimes they pull it through sand. Can you imagine pulling something like that through sand? And so those are some of the crazy ones. They also do some normal things. So they do deadlift. If you don't know what deadlift is, you walk up to a bar, you turn your hands this way, and you pick it up and you have to lock your hips. Like you can't, you have to get it all the way up. All right, so the record for that is 909 pounds, almost 1,000 pounds. And then squat is another one they do. And they actually do squat by reps. And so... Um, in the 2021 competition, so if you don't know squat, you have to go down and your, your knees and your hips have to be parallel. So you have to go down like this and then you have to come up. The guy that won the competition in 2021 for squat did 716 pounds 15 times. He squatted that 
15 times. I mean, these things are amazing. I kind of maybe, when I was looking up all this stuff, I thought, I don't know why I quit watching this. This is crazy. These guys are enormous. Um, and so they're incredible feats of strength. And they've been doing it, I think, since the 60s or something. So, um, and it's always these enormous guys. And they're usually from somewhere in Europe or the U.S. A lot of the competitors are. But we're drawn to these things because God has put in us a God-given desire to, to be drawn towards strength and to desire to, to see it and, and glorify strength. So whether it's something like this, or if you've ever been to like an amazing concert, you know, with somebody who can just, just sing amazing, and, uh, you know, whether it's somebody modern or, or somebody from of old, but somebody who's just got a great voice, and you see them just do a whole set of two or three hours, never missing a note, hitting all the, all the high notes and low notes. It's amazing to see that strength. Uh, the Olympics, I never watched track and field to the Olympics, but I always love to see like the 100, 200 meter dash, right? Who's the fastest person in the world, right? Who can run, uh, male, female, who's, who's the fastest person? Um, you know, we love to, get, to eat good food. If you're into food, it's, it's awesome to have a meal that's expertly prepared and all the flavors fit together. So we're drawn to these things of strength. And there's a, there's a, a sense of in us that that's glorifying to God because God is so strong. He's fast. He's infinite. We're, in fact, we're going to spend eternity searching out all of his glory. And so a lot of that is God-given. But Paul's been using the last two chapters, and he's going to use chapter 15, to remind us that, yes, God is strong, and we want to spend time um, glorifying him and exploring his strengths. But the example that he set for us is he took on weakness and he went after the weak. And he bore with the weak. And he took the reproaches of the weak so that he might offer salvation to us. That's us. Basically, anybody who is born into sin, which is every human, in times old, times now, times in the future, Christ came and he sought the weak so that we might be saved. And that's what Paul is encouraging us to do here in these verses. And so I want to jump in. Here's the four uh, points we're going to hit. So verse 1, the strong are called to bear with the weak. Verse 2, as soon as I read it, I thought that reminds me of the second greatest commandment. And then verse 3, we're to follow Christ's example. And then verse 4, God and his scripture, everything he's left us is to help us endure because we are living in a world that's cursed with sin and we long for a better place and a better day and to encourage he has given us each other. He's given us his word. He's given us the Holy Spirit for our encouragement. So let's jump in and talk about verse 1. Um, so we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So you may think, okay, who is strong, right? We need to figure that out. Well, really none of us, right? Apart from Christ, none of us are strong. None of us are able to get to God on our own. None of us are able to, to have our own righteousness. None of us are able to be free of sin apart from the redeeming work of Christ. So in a sense, we're all weak. Now, God has granted some of us areas where he has given us gifts and abilities and strengths, and those are not to be lorded over. In fact, uh, Jesus is clear to rebuke 
those uh, religious leaders, when he's talking to his Pharisees and says, when you, you see them, they lord it over people. Don't be like that. God hasn't given us those things to lord it over and to remind people and to let them know he's given it to us that we might bear with those who need help. He's given us that strength to bear with the weak. And so none of us are strong in all areas, and we all need each other. Now, what, I, what we're not saying here in bearing with the weak is bearing with a brother or sister who's in sin. Ron Jour did an excellent job in his sermon on the first part of Romans 14 to remind us that these are not talking about areas of sin. These are talking about areas of different convictions, different opinions. But it's not, we're not to bear with someone who says, hey, I really love this person and it feels right, so I think adultery is okay for me. God's word uh, doesn't matter anymore. That's not where we're bearing with somebody. If somebody's really struggling with, with fits of rage and outbursts of anger, it's not something where we just say, where we're, we're going to bear with him. Uh, we're not, we are going to bear with him in a sense that we're going to love him and encourage him and admonish him and rebuke him, but we're not going to just say, well, that's okay, uh, we just need to bear with him. Somebody who's spreading gossip and trying to create dissension, that's not something that we just bear with somebody. The New Testament is very clear about how we deal with issues of sin and how we love each other and confront each other and correct each other and go to each other. This is, but this is not what we're talking about, okay? And we're also not talking about just affirming anything that you want to do, like our culture said and, and Ron Jure preached about. This is not just anything that's, that you think is fine, we now have to affirm. We want to live within the bounds of Scripture because God has given us the Scripture, has given us His Holy Spirit so that we might live in a way that is for our good and for His glory. So it's also not a... Um, the other temptation is, okay, we've got to bear with each other so we can never disagree. So we're just going to live at this kind of superficial level, and we're not going to go deep. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, nobody say anything that would rock the boat. It's not that kind of superficial living. This is real life-on-life life living, and if you're doing that, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have friction. You're going to rub on each other. You're going to have disagreements. You're going to have differences of opinion. Paul's just spent two chapters, 13 and 14, telling us that's going to happen. And he's going to crescendo it here in this 15 chapter because he was given some specific examples about food that was, you know, sacrificed to idols or not, and basically saying all things are clean, but if something's unclean to somebody, then it's sin for that person. But Paul couldn't go through every example. He couldn't foresee every single thing. So now he's coming in 15, and Martin Luther says, He's been talking specifically in his, in, about food in his commentary. He says that, and he says now he's going to move to more general things. So that the church at large, as things moved on to different issues, we'd be able to come back and say, okay, maybe we can't figure out exactly what to do because it's not a food issue, but 15, we're told here to bear with each other and to love each other. And so, um, you know, our culture is divided in a lot of ways. And it was in Roman times too. It was divided even more explicitly, almost into different castes and levels of society. And when the church came together in Roman times, and they loved each other, regardless of what gender they were, what uh, status they were, politically, socioeconomically, when they came together and loved each other, that was a, that was a big head-scratcher for the Romans. They couldn't figure it out. Why would you 
if you were at this level of society, commune with somebody who's at this level of society. And it was very attractional to the Roman people. And that's how the gospel spread is because it was so countercultural. And our culture is very divided today. Um, it's political season. And uh, I don't know about you, the older I get, like I hate election years. I just, you know, I don't know. I wish they couldn't, I wish TV commercials were illegal. Like, I don't enjoy it. It interrupts my life. Uh, and, you know, even my kids who, who haven't, you know, they're not old enough to vote, but without any kind of prompting, uh, a few months ago, we're like, that, all these things do is say, this person is terrible. No, this person is terrible. And I was like, yeah, I know you don't really get any real information from the commercials. Um, but elections always highlight, especially recently, how divided we are. And I'm not going to get into what the divisions are, but I, I think regardless of where you fall, it's easy to see that our culture is very divided about things. And so when a group of people, a diverse group of people from different parts of the city, different ethnicities, different, uh, um, you know, different, um, what am I trying to say, different walks of life in terms of occupation come together and they're able to love each other and submit to each other and treat each other with equal dignity that we all have value in the sight of God, it's, it's going to stand out to the culture, not just to Western culture, to every culture. Because the way we're created as, as sin, we're, we're created to put ourselves at the center of the universe. And we're created to think about my kingdom and how can I make my life better, even if it means I make your life worse. And so when we come together and we pull that back and say, no, I want to love you and I want to serve you and I want to build you up for your good, people are going to ask, where is that coming from? Because they know it's not inborn, it's not naturally inside of them. And so Paul is saying we've got to bear with each other not to please ourselves, but meaning not to please myself, but to please you. And so that's where he's pushing us, and that's where we're going to go as we go to uh, verse 2. So in verse 2, he says, um, let each of us, uh, sorry, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. And that reminded me of the second greatest commandment. And the second greatest commandment takes place in the Gospels. Uh, and there's one, in, one account in Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 to, to, uh, to 40. And this is getting near the end of Jesus' life. And the religious leaders are really getting annoyed with Jesus, like they've had enough. And they're really trying to catch him and show everybody that he is a false prophet and that we don't need to listen to him. So... The Sadducees had just taken a run at Jesus about the, um, the life, basically life after death. And uh, Jesus just totally gave them an answer of truth, and they go away with their tail tucked. And so the Pharisees decide they want to give it a run. So they come at Jesus with something they think is an impossible question to answer. It's a trap question. They come and they ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Well, why is that a trap question? Because all of God's law is important. And so who wants to take on, you know, deciding why this one's more important than this one? Uh, it's kind of like if kids were to go to their parents and say, hey, who do you love the most? Right? I mean, there's not a good answer to that question. Somebody's going to get their feelings hurt. Okay? So they think they've got Jesus because how are you going to say one part of God's law is more important than another part of God's law? Right? And so listen to what Jesus says to him. 
He says, picking up in verse 38, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. All right, so no doubt he's answering their question. But then he gives them a bonus. He said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So you shall love your neighbor as yourself sounds a lot like let each of us please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. So one thing that we've got to be careful of is the second commandment doesn't work without the first commandment. So Paul has built all of Romans up to this point assuming the first commandment to be true. That you are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. Because if you're not, you have no hope of loving your neighbor as yourself. If Christ hasn't come into your heart and redeemed you and given you his Holy Spirit, you have no shot at, at getting the second commandment uh, right even any other time. So we've got to remember that all of Romans up until this point is built on the assumption, and Paul has, has put together some strong arguments about why the first point is true, why we've got to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he says, let us, build, let us each please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Well, how do we build up our neighbor? How do we love our neighbor as ourself? Well, if you just go back, and my Bible is on the same page, to Romans 12, there's a lot of helpful hints in there. So we need to love each other with genuine love. We need to love each other with affection. So it's not, it's not, a, it's not a, a fake pretend or heartless, I know this is the right thing to do, but I don't really want to do it. There's affection with the love. We show honor to each other as as greater than ourselves. We contribute to each other's needs, whether that's directly helping somebody, whether that's giving to things like the general church, church budget, giving to other things the Lord puts on your heart. He says, do not be haughty. So basically don't think you're above other people. That's anti, anti what, the, what the gospel teaches. Do not repay evil for evil. That's countercultural in any age. Live peaceably. He says, pray, be patient in tribulation, rejoice and weep together. These are ways that we can build each other up and that we can honor each other as greater than ourselves, that we can, we can do what Paul is encouraging us to do, that we can please our neighbor for our good and to build him up. So Paul uses Romans 14 to expand on all of these uh, specific instances but he knows, as I mentioned earlier, there's going to be a lot, a lot more instances. Um, I don't remember if it was Pastor Ranger or Pastor Sean said this, you know, these are a lot of the reasons why we have so many de uh, different denominations in the West. Is a lot of these ideas, uh, you know, brothers and sisters decided they, they didn't want to do Romans 13, 14, and 15, and, you know, there was a schism. And so Paul knows that the enemy wants to turn us on each other. But he also knows that the whole law, everything God has, has summed up is in loving God with all our heart and loving each other as ourselves. And then he goes to verse 3 and he points to Christ's example. So he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna basically build on his argument and say, if you're having any doubt, look at Christ. We know Christ is our example. So in verse 3 he says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written... The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So basically, I took other people's shame 
pain, sin, and guilt and put it on me. That's what Christ says. And Paul's referencing here, this quote, is from Psalm 69.9, which uh, Thomas Schreiner in his commentary, by the way, my wife, my wife has a major theology crush on Thomas Schreiner. You can pray for her about that. Um, but Thomas Schreiner in his commentary points out uh, that this Psalm 69 has been widely interpreted as a messianic psalm. And when you go read it, uh, you see it everywhere. I'll just give you some of the imagery. So, verses, so this is the actual verse he quotes. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So that's verse 9. But verses 1 through 3, the, the, he's pleading with God because the floodwaters are rising, and he's weary with crying for help. Verse 4, he says, he must make atonement for wrongs he did not commit. Verse 7, it is for God's sake that he was reproached and dishonored. So it was for God's glory that he took our reproaches and our dishonor. Verses 14 and 15, he's sinking in the mire, and the deep was seeking to swallow him up. Verse 20, he had reproach, shame, and dishonor. So that's verse 19. Verse 20, he looked for pity, but there was none. He looked for comforters, but he found none. In verse 21, when he was thirsty, they gave him sour wine to drink. So when you read Psalm 69, it's all, all the, the imagery is all over about Christ coming and bearing our reproach and taking our sin. He took our wrongs. He sunk down in the deep, in the, in the mire of sin and was separated from God so that we might be united with him. And we need to understand that only by the power of Christ can we desire these things. Our natural instinct is is selfishness. Our natural instinct is sin. That, that again, is our native language. That's what, we, that's what naturally flows out of us. And we need the Holy Spirit so that we can learn how to speak the gospel and rehearse it to ourselves. And so as we go on in verse 4, Paul's going to show us if we believe these things to be true and, and we let the Holy Spirit work in our hearts and we seek the Lord... He will give us endurance and encouragement. He has not given us a task that he cannot help us get through and bear through. We can't do it on our own, but in his spirit, he can help us. So in verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, what scriptures is he talking about? Well, at that time, he's only talking about the the Old Testament because he's writing Romans, right? And so now we know we have the Old Testament and the New Testament for our endurance and our encouragement. Paul's encouraging them to look back, basically in Genesis through Malachi, for encouragement. And sometimes it can be easy when you think about God, either, either just kind of culturally, how he's portrayed sometimes, or in reading the Old Testament, it can be easy to think that God is a judge who's sitting there waiting for you to mess up. That he's almost on the edge of his seat, and he's watching you, he's watching every move, and he's like, boom, I got him, I knew it. It's easy to think about when you messed up and bring all kinds of self-condemnation on because you're picturing God there 
waiting to condemn you and, and to just pour out on you. But what does Paul say? He says in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement, God is there waiting to encourage you. No one is more affected by sin than God. He is more affected than we are. There's a psalm that landed on me recently, um, maybe a few weeks ago, a month ago, Psalm uh, 711, easy to remember. Uh, Psalm 711 says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Now, God is a righteous judge. What does that mean? It means that God is over all of creation, okay? We have authority in our lives, like the Supreme Court is over legal questions in the U.S. It's not over non-legal questions, and it's not over questions of other countries' laws or anything outside of the U.S. But God is a judge over all. So he's over all creation. All things, uh, uh, you know, whether they have consciousness or not, animals, people, planets, God is over all of it. So he's, he's sovereign. But he's not only the judge, what does it say? God is a righteous judge. So what does that mean? He, he, cannot, he, he cannot tolerate sin. He is not able to sin. God's what we call immutable, meaning he's perfect. He's incapable of change because he is a complete, whole, perfect being. There's nothing for him to change and get better to. So God is righteous. He's different from us. He's set apart. He's holy. He's pure. So that means he's incapable of issuing judgments that are not righteous, that are, that are corrupt, um, that are scandalous. God is not capable of that because he's, he's righteous. So he's a judge, he's overall, and he's righteous. That means ultimately he's the only one that's truly holy, and when we sin, it's against him. It, it can be against other people as well. If you say a harsh word you know, to a good friend or a roommate or a spouse, you know, that's something that you need to go to them and apologize for. But ultimately, you're breaking God's law when you do that. And so, it can be easy to think uh, sometimes, um, how does this wickedness go on? But we have to remember, we're just seeing a microcosm. So, there's about 7 billion people in the world. In fact, it's getting closer to 8 billion people in the world. So, 8 billion people in the world. And how many times a day do we sin? 10? 100? Probably more like a thousand, right? Every anxious thought, uh, every act of selfishness, every moment of anxiety, uh, every moment, you know, responding to someone in anger. Um, there's, I mean, it just we're just sin factories, right? Let's say it's ten times a day. So eight billion people sinning ten times a day. Again, we probably should use a thousand, but the numbers get tough. Uh, that's 80 billion sins a day. Now, I have a number. Can you put the number up? That's the number of sins per year. Does anybody even know what number that is? Right? I don't know. It's a lot, okay? It's big. A lot of zeros, a lot of commas. Uh, it's actually 29 trillion. 29 trillion sins per year, and that's if it's 10 a day per person. It's probably a lot more. Numbers are too big to, like, even do decades, centuries, and millenniums, right? This is... This is the indignation that is happening to God every 
single day. So when you get a glimpse of you see somebody being impatient, maybe acting rude and treating somebody with a lack of dignity, maybe an older person that somebody, a younger person's impatient with and, and doesn't treat them with respect, when you feel that indignation, that's one instance in one day. It's, it's barely anything. It's like a, a vapor you know, of mist right above the ground for a minute or two before the sun comes up and burns it off. The indignation that God feels is unthinkable to us as humans. And sometimes it can be easy. I've been reading the Old Testament, and sometimes it can feel like maybe God was a little different back then than he is now, right? When you read about Jesus and you read about some of the judgments back then, but sometimes you just get a paragraph or two about somebody who was uh, judged or, or people, a group of people that were judged. But if you read the Old Testament, you'll see themes emerge. And those themes are God gives people instruction. He tells them how to live in a way that will, that will create peace and, and will create joy for themselves and will be in harmony with him. And then what happens? They rebel and they break it. And so God sends warnings and he sends more instructions. And then what happens? They turn and do what's right? No, they rebel. Sometimes they up and they rebel even more. And God sends more warnings. Sometimes he'll send prophets that'll say, you need to turn and do this or God is going to judge you. And sometimes they will even treat those prophets poorly and say, you are a liar. We're not listening to you. And so this will go on sometimes for generations or hundreds of years, and then eventually God will bring judgment. But when you see his judgment, he will, he will bring mercy and he will preserve a remnant. And so sometimes when we're tempted to think maybe God was either in a bad mood back then or he was, he was harsh, we need to see Scripture for all of it together. That God is a God who is patiently enduring with us and a God who's feeling billions of indignations every single day and that he still wanted to come make us his children so that we could be with him for eternity. It's astounding that God would want to do that. I mean, that he would want to come to somebody that's essentially spitting in his face and insulting him and saying, I want you to be in my family forever. That he would give us himself. And so if God can, can... do that kind of work in a world where billions of indignations are happening against him every single day. He has the ability to give us the encouragement and the endurance we need to get through whatever it is that we're fighting or get through whatever it is that we're facing that's tempting to steal our hope. How does verse 4 end? It says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, right? We might have hope. We need hope to get through life. We need eternal hope to be able to be salt and light in this world. I just finished uh, reading a book called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. And it's about, um, this is not the point of the book, it's about uh, how to relate to your daughters in a way that's healthy and brings, and, and brings encouragement to them. But uh, the lady who wrote it is a doctor. And at one point in one of the chapters, she was talking about how um, she and other, her other colleagues have noticed when they have a patient who's fighting an illness, they can always tell when the pr- patient has given up hope. Their countenance, their demeanor, 
everything changes, and almost within a matter of days, every time they die. That medically, they can tell when the desire, when the hope of actually getting better has gone, the whole person changes, and usually it results in in a soon death. We need hope. God has created us in a way that we cannot exist without hope. And we're living in a world that needs hope, in a world that year after year is having record number of people dying from overdoses and suicides. We live in a, in a world that a lot of people have given up hope about the future and things getting better. The message of the gospel will shine brighter in a world like that. The message of the gospel will be sweeter to the ears of our neighbors and our coworkers in a world like this. And so we've got to to have that hope. The only way that we can have that endurance and that encouragement that will lead us to that hope is to let God's word wash over us, to let it seep deep into us, to let it attach itself to our bones. We need each other. We've got to fellowship together. We've got to speak words to each other. I was uh, feeling a little bit anxious before this morning, and uh, Annie's exuberance and zeal over wanting to pray and hear the word preached. God used to to buoy my soul. And so we need to be together. We need to speak life into each other. We need to bear each other's burdens. We need to, and we can't do these things in isolation. So we all need hope with something that's bigger than ourselves. And Schreiner, I want to close with this, about this verse, says that the scriptures that Paul's talking about and the God that Paul's talking about are not merely academic. The scriptures should provide strength and nourishment for the Christian life, to live the Christian life. We all need hope, and the only only real eternal hope is in Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this passage. Thank you for being kind to us. Thank you for leaving us your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to believe these things. Help my heart to believe these things, Lord. I pray that we would cling to you, Lord. And I pray that you would give us endurance when we're weary. I pray you would give us encouragement. Lord, and I pray that it would lead to hope. Real, lasting hope. Father, I pray that you would show us how to interact with each other in a way that is honest and is real but also in a way that desires to serve, that desires to to show honor, in a way that desires to love genuinely with affection, Lord. We confess these these are not in us apart from you. And I pray you be with us now, Lord, as we go to the Lord's Supper. In your name, amen.